Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the physics of Walter Ritz, imaginary friends, giraffes, zombies, vampires. But first up, here's the news with Caitlin Howlett. Astronomers have discovered that one of Saturn's moons, called Enceladus, may harbour alien life. No, it's not a Mexican meal, but it does have a very salty ocean underneath its icy surface. Two studies released in Nature looked for evidence of salt in water vapour and ice crystals from one of Saturn's moons. One study is led by Frank Posberg from the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics in Heidelberg, Germany. Posberg used a fancy device called Cassini's Cosmic Dust Analyzer to check the composition of ice and dust particles. The team found about 6% of the pure water ice analysed was very salty and mixed with carbonates such as soda. So while they haven't seen an ocean, they have evidence of its existence and it may be able to harbour a precursor to life, similar to how life evolved on Earth. A study published in the Geological Journal says that woolly mammoths were still in Britain just 14,000 years ago. In the past, they were thought to have gone extinct 21,000 years ago during a period called the Last Glacial Maximum. The study found that five mammoths back in England in 1986, when they were discovered, were incorrectly dated. They used a new radiocarbon dating process to conclude that the British mammoths were 6,000 years younger than previously thought. If only I could put my skin through this new radiocarbon dating process, perhaps it would make that look younger too. Another controversial debate unravels in science this week with a study published about how the giraffe got such a long neck. According to the last edition of the Journal of Zoology, scientists have found evidence that sexual selection is not the key to this riddle. The theory of sexual selection says that longer necks make male giraffes more sexually attractive to the females. But if it was sexual selection, male giraffes would have evolved longer necks than female giraffes. A common example of a sexually selected trait is the peacock's tail, which only males have. So after measuring the height, weight and the length of necks and legs of male and female giraffes in Zimbabwe, this team has found little variation between those sexes. So this is not what you would expect if the necks were a male feature. But that doesn't mean that Lamarck was right. And pardon the pun, but the long debate continues. And lastly, imaginary friends have been found to actually help children learn how to communicate. A study in the journal Developmental Science suggests that the imaginary friends can force children to consider somebody else's point of view. This makes them better able to interact with real people, and the benefits are thought to last into adulthood, say Australian psychologists. 
Films and television such as Donnie Darko and Drop Dead Fred tend to depict imaginary friends as being unhealthy or insane. But kids with imaginary friends have also been found to have better sentence structure than kids without imaginary friends. So surveys have estimated that up to 65% of children have imaginary friends during their first eight years of life. So how about you? Have you had any imaginary friends? In the studio, we have John August and Mark West. I haven't had any imaginary friends, I don't think, that I can remember anyway. Well, I haven't had any imaginary friends either, but one thing that that uh, story does make me wonder is rather than thinking that it gave the children a sense of the other people and putting themselves in a person's perspective. It may simply be that they just had a lot more practice forming sentences because they were talking to someone else for a lot, long, lot more of the time. It could That's, be. It could be. I didn't have an imaginary friend either. But as an adult, I found having imaginary conversations with my friends, rehearsing a conversation before I've had it or just thinking if that friend was here, what would I ask them? I found a useful way to get access to information I already have. So if I have a problem about something, I think I've got my friend who's an expert in that. And as I phrase the question and I want to tell him if I'm going to write an email or something, I can hear him telling me the answer before I've even sent the email and I don't have to send it. Well, in in the Gnostic tradition, uh, it was supposed to be possible to have an imaginary conversation with God and that would basically be as, as good as the real thing. I think it's always possible to have an imaginary conversation with God. <laughs> oh, well, I should say a conversation with an imaginary goddess, perhaps. Oh, no, maybe it was better the right way the first time around. Well, I almost had an imaginary friend. I believed that I saw the tooth fairy in the driveway at home on our farm. And while I never had any conversations with that tooth fairy, um, it seemed very real to me at the time. So... Mm. Uh, I don't know how I would have developed better sentence structure out of that. I think I just had a wild imagination. And uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, in our day and age, we're discovering that insanity isn't so insane after all. (laughs) (laughs) I had one uh, imaginary... Well, it wasn't an imaginary friend, but I used to imagine that this alien visited my room at night and I swore that I saw it and it scared the bejesus out of me. How old? Oh, I was quite young. I was... uh, like four, and it actually the dream is still with me today. I still have it, a recurring thing. It's quite, it's quite bizarre. So, is that more like a night terror? Is that something that feels like it's real, or yes. does it feel? So, it's not a dream, really. Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. Yes, ah. that's it. That's so the same yes. phenomenon. Yes, which is different to imaginary friends because one, you're in an altered state of consciousness, and two, you don't normally carry on a conversation. Like the tooth fairy, you don't carry on a conversation. It's a type of hallucination. Actually, there's an article coming up in the next issue of Cosmos about sleep paralysis. Oh, really? I would be fascinated to read that because I, oh, I still su- suffer, or I don't Same know that's the word. I still have it to this day, and it's, it's, it scares me, although I'm quite used to it too. I'm really hoping I could uh, turn it into lucid dreaming, to be honest, where you sort of know you're asleep, and it doesn't scare you, and you can do all these amazing things. Can you but wake no, yourself up from it? I get my girlfriend to wake me up because I have a certain amount of control. I can't speak. Uh, I can make noises. Can and you move? Not really, no. That's where I was very lucky. Although it's sleep paralysis, I'm able to move my hand over and switch on the light. Oh, really? In fact, I'm able to get up out of bed. There's a good side and a bad side because you're hallucinating, so you might not see the room as it really is, Yep. which means you can knock things over. Yep. On the other hand, you can switch on a light and go back to being awake, <laughs> and all the hallucinations go away. That is so cool. Because I don't know that I... Well, maybe I hallucinated when I was younger. Nowadays, I don't think I hallucinate. I think I dream that I'm dreaming. Yes. And, and it's, it's just... It's trippy. It's it's really quite weird. <laughs> well, now, lucid dreaming is definitely something you can teach yourself. 
and it's worth learning. And it can help you out of those sort of other situations, depending on how the paralysis affects you. It can definitely get, help you out of normal nightmares. That would be great. I would love that. Everyone should learn it. Well, there's all sorts of things I'd do in my dreams, but they're probably not fit to wear. So uh, maybe we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Next up, John August talks about the physics of Walter Ritz, who was a rival of Einstein's and whose physics today is seen as an alternative to relativity by a small minority of physicists. For a number of years, I've had an interest in an alternative to the theory of relativity, Ritzian theory. Ian Wolfe was kind enough to interview me on it a number of years ago. I've done a few things lately, which I'll get to. What is Ritzian theory? One aspect is what relativity calls changes to mass. It calls changes to force. According to relativity, as we accelerate a charged particle, for example towards a TV screen, as we crank up the voltage, it becomes more and more massive, diminishing the resultant acceleration. However, according to Ritzian theory, we see the same thing happening because the force is diminishing. It's analogous to firing a cannonball from a cannon and finding that we can't get it travelling any faster than seven times the speed of sound. We'd be wrong to say that this means it is impossible for anything to travel faster than that speed, because it's caused by the fact that inside the cannon, the gas particles travel at this speed, seven times the speed of sound because it's a, a, a lot denser, a lot higher temperature, and when the cannonball travels at that speed, they cannot keep up with it and push it any harder. There's a lot more to the theory than this, of course. It has something to say about electromagnetism, and there's lots of other areas where you can explain observations, but I don't have time to go into that now. Traditionally, such theories are the purview of cranks, and of course people would like to shoehorn me into that mould. Still, I've given talks on the subject to physics and philosophy departments at the Sydney University, though I should be careful to say that they've not in, in fact endorsed what I'm claiming. And also let me say this, I could be wrong. I'd rather be wrong on my own terms, of course, and I do have an experiment which would falsify my theory. For whenever in relativity you had increasing mass, now we have a diminishing force. And you can get a Ritzian analogue of many relativistic situations. But there's one area where there is a difference. We don't have relativistic velocity addition. This means that you can in fact have particles travelling faster than the speed of light. So, let us take an energetic lithium nucleus, which decays into two helium nuclei, each fragment moving at about half a percent of the speed of light and move the lithium nucleus at 99.75% of the speed of light before it decays and, bingo, one of those fragments will exceed the speed of light. Good. A theory. An experiment to falsify the theory. The scientific method at work. How do you do this experiment? Well, we're talking about giga-electron volts, not mega-electron volts. If it were mega-electron volts, perhaps I could knock up an accelerator in the back shed, keying on Cockroft-Walton or Van de Graaff principles. So... We have to go to the people who have the keys to the big toys. That's what I've done. I've written letters to the administrator of the Relativistic Heavy Iron Collider in Berkeley, California, but not gotten any reply. Perhaps that's not terribly surprising. 
but it does tell us something about the institution of science. For all the promises of the scientific method, if you follow the processes, it doesn't necessarily reciprocate. Science is fundamentally a human institution and inherits its human frailties. I do talk to people doing relatively mainstream research who do comment about being ignored or trumped by some mafia, a collection of researchers in a particular nation or part of a nation who has first option at getting published regardless of supposed impartiality. And that's in the relative mainstream. I'm even more on the fringe. So what do we have left? Well, there are European accelerators which might have the capacity needed. I'll be writing letters to them too, probably to no effect. But that's the institution of science for you. So thank you, John August. I think we we might need to discuss this one rather than just letting it go. I think the institution of science is Mm. more than a little bit maligned. I don't really think that's quite fair. I'd like to start this one by talking about the fact that in order to test the idea whether or not you can have something going very, very close to the speed of light and then have it emit a particle going very, very fast, and if the two velocities together add it up... uh, greater than the speed of light, which is what you're suggesting. Yes. To do that, as you point out, requires the most expensive machine in the world, the Large Hadron Collider, where mm, they'll be putting no, things up to 99.9% of the speed of light. Relativistic Heavy Iron Collider, not the Large Hadron Collider. Relativistic Heavy Iron Collider. It's, it's a, a few notches back from that, that cutting edge. My point is that, as you say, it's very expensive machines. The la- the point, one of the points of the Large Hadron Collider, the biggest machine, is to go as fast as possible. If there is a way to go faster, they'll try it out. Somebody will try it. So my point is the method, the procedure with which you get to your experiment, time on this very expensive machine of which there's only uh, there's one LHC, there's one RHIC, and there's a few other I accelerators think around. You're the process your is not sending. Confused. I think uh, my point, if you'll let me actually get to the point, is that these are expensive machines. You don't normally get access to them by writing a letter. There are actually experiments that have been lined up for a long time for these things. There's ways, there's procedures, there's grants, there's ways of actually getting your experiment approved, and letter writing isn't in the normal range of the way you get your experiments run on equipment like this. Same goes for telescopes. If you wanted to do an observation, you don't simply write a letter to the observatory as a member of the public and say, hey, I'd like to spend several hours and several million dollars worth of your time looking at this object in the sky. There's procedures that are a bit more complicated than just writing a letter. Like, they don't let just anybody on because there's a limited amount of time and it's expensive. So if you were to get a paper published, if you were to approach them through normal academic channels and actually apply, it might be a different thing. The other thing is, what you're suggesting isn't that radical experiment. To try and get as fast as possible... I would have thought that's a pretty basic thing to do. They've already tried, been trying to do that. I managed to find lots of papers when I looked up. The, it took me basically five seconds on Google to find several papers where, what do you know, they're trying to accelerate lithium ions and see them decay into helium exactly as you propose. So that experiment's been done over and over and over again, and every time it's been done, there's relativistic effects. They see time dilation. They see Lorentzian contraction. They get exactly that. But what they haven't done is go up to the speeds you're talking about because they haven't had the equipment before. So if they've done it over and over and over and over and over with the slower machines, they're bound to try your experiment with the faster machines because it's an obvious logical thing to try. Let's say, first off, I think you're putting accelerators into different categories. Now, a relativistic heavy ion collider is actually moving around nuclei. 
Normally, when you want things to move really fast, you're just moving particles a lot less massive than a nuclei, and it's actually a lot easier to get them travelling at very high speeds. Uh, the heavy ion collider, basically, these things that actually move lithium ions around are uh, lithium ions, helium ions around are in a quite different category to the ones that really try to get things moving quickly because the way they get things moving quickly is to start off with something that's a lot less massive than a nucleus. So, you know, there's, there's these particular um, accelerators and I guess I'm not sure of quite the details, but, um, you know, I certainly if you look at the, at the textbooks on relativity, they all have this illustration of like this uh, cannonball that explodes and then do the transformations on the velocities that result from that. But I haven't seen in any uh, relativistic textbook any reference to any experiments that's remotely like that. Now you're telling me that there are... Um, uh, I brought several papers in, yes. It's a standard experiment. There's lots of them. If you do a Google search, there's lots. Did you do a Google search? Not recently. But yet, well, at all, might be a start. But, I mean, surely you're not suggesting that that relativity is 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 wrong. I mean, even in my honours year, did laser spectroscopy experiments and measured the velocity of ions, and you could and relativity fitted it perfectly. Well, that's that's a separate issue, and I'm still focusing on what Ian has said. I'm wondering, Ian, would you like me to go and have a look at the papers, and we can come back and do this whole exercise again? Well. The point is that people have been doing the exact experiment you're suggesting, but not as fast. Your suggestion is, is a logical one, to go close to the speed of light and then try and make something go just a bit faster, right? Add the velocities. It's, it's very basic. The people have done this at slower speeds because they haven't had as fast equipment before and they've got relativistic effects, but they haven't done what you've suggested and actually try and exceed the speed of light because, as you say, that requires the absolute biggest and most expensive toys, so, Big toys, not the biggest ones. Well, what, I, what I'm saying is I wouldn't be surprised at all if you went through the papers either of what's well, been done or what's about to be done. Well, it's test, such a logical thing. Tests of special relativity in an iron storage ring. Tell me more about what this experiment is actually doing. Are they actually talking about the lithium ions decaying? Yes. Yes, they are. They're talking about your experiment, only slower. It's relativistic speeds, but it's not fast enough that the alpha particles, will, the helium ions, will go faster than light. They'll go faster, but there's relativistic effects. So it's rel- basically special relativity is tested. It's been tested over I and over and over again. I don't see any mention of the decay of the lithium ions in the abstract. Well... That's actually not the whole abstract. It's just the first page. You'll have to get the whole thing. I didn't get time to print everything out because no, you told me quite no, late what you were talking about. I would about. have thought if there was a decay, it would be listed in the abstract. Well, I, I can get you see. a 2007 paper that I didn't have time to print out before I went that will show you research they did in 2007 where it was decay of lithium ions. Why do you think they're looking at the lithium ions as opposed to anything else they could put in? It's because they decay. Yes, that's right. That, that, that is correct. Lithium that's why I'm saying it's logical. One of the really big problems that we're going to have with this is this uh, relativistic heavy iron collider in Berkeley is going to have to change its name. It's not going to be allowed to call the, 
the relativistic heavy iron collider <laughs> anymore, isn't it? It's going to have to be the Fritzian. Can you imagine the stationary costs to changing their logos, their <laughs> I'll, letterheads? I'll, I'll, grant, I'll grant them their traditions. I mean, it's not just a couple of million bucks to use the equipment. You're, you're going to have to spend a fortune. I'll grant them their, their, uh, their, their uh, traditions, shall we say. Right. <laughs> but, uh, having but, said that, they've just added a new element to the periodic table. You know, that requires a little bit of change. And I think um, generally... That does say that the institution of science is flexible and that um, it does have to obviously be within boundaries and there need to be guidelines and rules so that everyone can stick by it. But I think the most important thing is that people are questioning and that A plus B equals C, yes, but there's going to be different perceptions of why um, people see A as A and people see B as B. So, yeah. I think it is flexible and I don't think that the institution of science is something to be frowned upon in any way because it is um, really important to question things for starters and that's what's important about it. It seems to me that people are testing relativity. There was one of the things that came up in a five-second Google search was a whole issue of a journal that was devoted to challenges to, to tests of relativity. Because it's tested and tested and tested. Because anyone who gets to show oh. that relativity is not true gets the Nobel Prize and all the fame and fortune. I think you've got... Uh, I, I really don't think the situation is the way that you describe it. What people have done a lot of, and I certainly acknowledge it, is we have an experimental situation. Uh, we use relativity to come up with some numbers and we see that the numbers in that experiment actually match those of relativity. But... The thing is, a lot of alternatives to relativity are actually going to come up with the same observable numbers. But not all of them. Not all of them. So that's why you actually have to look for an alternative to the theory of relativity that actually indicates a divergence in some area. But that, the thing, that's the problem. The thing that... about Ritzian theory is that a lot of interactions in uh, relativity have a direct analogue in, in Ritzian physics, and you're actually going to come up with the same numbers while there's going to be a different mechanism behind that. I suppose I can only say, for all I was trying to say that the Institute of Science is flawed, I would actually recognise the times where it does actually work and it does actually do useful and interesting things. And while I would be critical of relativity, I would always grant relativity the, the status as a, a valid engineering approximation. Thank you, John August. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now, correlation of the week. Mark West brings us zombies and vampires and republicans. A friend of mine recently pointed me in the direction of an article that puts forward the theory that more vampire movies come out when Democrats are elected to the US presidency and more zombie movies come out when the Republicans are in office. Recent evidence of this, they say, is the new Twilight vampire flick coinciding with the election of Democrat Obama and the spate of zombie films during George W. Bush's presidency, for example, 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later and Dawn of the Dead. The original article looks back in time at the various presidencies and it makes compelling reading. But what is the reason behind this if there really is one? One argument put forward is that the movies depict what we fear at the time. Democrats who believe in redistributing wealth among the people fear the Wall Street vampires who bleed the nation dry. Vampires such as Dracula represent the aristocracy. Republicans fear a revolt of the poor and disenfranchised and as such fear zombies. But is there any truth to this argument? Let's turn to the data. 
The easiest way to determine the number of vampire and zombie films which have come out over the last 50 years is to look at the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com. Using its power search, I was able to find the number of movies made each year in the US since 1953, a seemingly good starting point for this analysis as there's plenty of movies as there's plenty of data since that date, as well as the number of movies which are tagged Vampire and Zombie. I've put this data up and some charts on my website, www.mrscienceshow.com, so check it out to have a look at the data. And we've plotted the number of zombie and vampire films produced as a percentage of all films produced during each presidential term. And what did we find? A standout result is the large number of zombie films made in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. It seems clear that zombie films peak in Republican years, but it's less clear whether vampire films have similar peaks under Democrats. Indeed, the average percentage of movies that are zombie-themed produced during a Democratic presidency is around about 0.37%, whilst under Republicans it's 0.57%. This is quite a large difference in the scheme of things. The average percentage of movies that are vampire-themed produced during a Democratic presidency is 0.54%, whilst under Republicans it's 049 This percentage moves in the direction of our theory, but not by much. But not by much. As I'm a bit of a maths nerd, I took this further. Using a single-tailed student's T-test, named after its inventor William Seeley Gossett, whose nom de plume was student, I always thought at school it was named after him because the test was used by students. But anyway, to test, what we did was test the null hypothesis that the governing party makes no difference to the types of movies made, and the theories that zombie movies go up under Republicans and vampire movies under Democrats. Doing this, we find there is a 5.7% chance that there is no significant difference between the zombie results under Democrats and Republicans. And this is very, very close to the 5% level which statisticians usually accept as significance. For the vampire case, this value is around about 33%, so there's little chance of significance, and both tests could be improved with more data. So in summary, there might just be something in this for the zombies anyway. To predict the next election, it could be well worth looking at how many zombie movies are planned for the inauguration year and the three years after it. As most movies are planned more than a year ahead of time, this could be an interesting election predictor. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments or suggestions, if you'd like to hear your voice on radio and become part of the Diffusion team, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were John August, Mark West and Caitlin Howlett. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Everything you know has become a lie Do you call when you know that the end of the world is nigh? Do you call when you need reliable and constant results? Do you call when you need to know the circumference of a circle in relation to its diameter? 